0: Welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first-check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams on day zero. If you're starting a new company and want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital or email us at hello at notation.bc. The title sponsor for this season of Origins is Carta, this season is also supported by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Carta simplifies how startups and investors manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. They also offer fund administration, where you can see real-time data in the Carta platform and work with their team of experienced fund accountants. We've been happy customers with Carta for a few years now, and we're thrilled to have them as our title sponsor. Go to carta.com notation to get 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SBB's services, visit SBB.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the beginning of Notation. They've helped us form both Notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at cooligo.com. Lo Tony is the founding managing partner of Plexo Capital. Plexo Capital is a new hybrid platform incubated inside of GV focused on making investments into seed stage VCs led by a woman or a person of color. Lo was previously a partner at GV and Comcast, and before that, an operator at various tech companies and startups, including Zynga, Nike, Art.com, and eBay. Lo. Yes. Thank you for doing this. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. Oh, and, I appreciate and, uh, the interest. And hosting us in, uh, in this nice GV office in this San Francisco. Beautiful. Did you see the view? amazing. It's amazing. Yes. We're going to record every <laughs> podcast here from here on out. So thanks so much for doing this. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your background?
1: Sure. So going all the way back, I grew up right across the bridge in Oakland Okay, and then went to school at Hampton University in Virginia. Um, worked for a few years, Chicago, financial services, came back to the Bay, went back to grad school at Cal. Was fortunate that while I was getting my MBA there were a number of VCs that came through to speak with the class, Hmm. and it really... And that was what, 90s?
2: It was, yeah. Yeah. So
1: it was like um, around 95 to 97. Okay. Yep. So Netscape had gone public while I was in school, and right. everyone was really excited about the internet. Uh, even before I started school that summer, I bought a book on HTML, taught mm. myself how to make web pages, made web pages for a few companies, and really thought this this internet thing might have some legs to it. Right. Was fortunate that a lot of VCs came through to to talk about what they did to help companies get to that point, to scale up, to be able to be a public entity, and. At that point... Do you remember I, one that stuck with you? Oh, boy. Who did we have? Oh, I, I can't think of his name, but he was from Foundation. Okay. um, Foundation. God, he's, and he's well-known because he actually had to, like, step out, run a company for a while, go back in. I ended up meeting with, the, at the time, there was a company called um, Documentum that did enterprise search. Uh, and he told me, I'll never forget this conversation. He said, hey, you should go and learn product management. Product management is the mini CEO of a company. If there's an interest on your part in early stage venture, then the playbook for product management is very similar to the playbook for early stage venture. And so I set out to put myself in as many experiences as possible and was fortunate to work with, you know, big and small companies, companies as big as as eBay, um, startups. And, you know, I think eBay, very formative time. You know, in fact, someone did a blog post once. Sergio Monsalve at Norwest did a blog post that the vintage I was at eBay from two thousand and two to two thousand and six, and I was employee thirty-eight forty eight, three thousand eight hundred wow. and forty eight. When okay. I left there were fifteen
0: thousand employees. Wow. And And this was right after it went public? Right. So this, was, right before, this was this right was after. right
1: after they acquired um PayPal.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So it was
1: after they went okay. public right. and right after they acquired PayPal. Right. So I started that um, that fall after they did the PayPal acquisition. And there were so many people that I worked with that ended up becoming VCs. You know, Michael Deering, Harrison Metal, Jeff Jordan, Andreessen Horowitz, um, Jeff Hausenbold, SoftBank Vision, the Mucker Capital guys, Eric and Will at Mucker Capital – Um, I mean, just, you know, Dana Stalder at Matrix. So why was that? You know, it it was an interesting phenomenon. I think there definitely, you know, we had our, there was the PayPal mafia that probably got all the publicity, but obviously there was an eBay. There's many mafias, right? But there absolutely was an eBay mafia. And I think what was really interesting for us is these are things that are hard to plan, but we were fortunate that we all saw significant scale. Yeah. right even after ebay went public nonetheless we saw you know 3800 to 15000 that's nice scale we also were able to see many of the elements of the business models that are prevalent today obviously the most significant being the marketplace so we saw a two-sided marketplace and we all had to in category management which is where i had most of my time We had to start up new businesses, so we had to understand what it's like to start a marketplace, you know, the cold start, you know, the supply and demand, the chicken and the egg. I think we also saw community because eBay had a very robust um, and and oftentimes very vocal community, so understanding community dynamics. Uh, Speaking of Jeff Hausenbold, I, I vividly remember always thinking that marketing was a place for people afraid of math to hide And I'll never forget going into a conference room after Jeff was in there with his team and just walking in and feeling like I was in an econ class. I mean, he had all these, you know, formulas on the wall and all of these graphs. And I was like, wow, you know, marketing has changed. It now is a place for the people that understand math deeply. Um, You know, at that time, this was pre-Google going public, right? So eBay at that time was Google's biggest customer. Right so eBay was paying a lot to Google for customer acquisition, so as a result, we also got to understand SEO mm-hmm. and the importance of content marketing and customer acquisition through other channels so you know, I just think overall um we all got to learn a lot of the different elements, right. and I think that has
0: helped you know it was like a master class in the early internet exactly that's exactly yeah. what it was, yeah, yeah where did you go from there because you then spent about I guess about 10 years in combination of product management and general management. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 I guess Michael Deering now teaches a class on general management. He does. I think so, he teaches at the D school
1: as yeah. well. Uh, he's amazing. I mean, he's he's obviously done done really, really well and and was amazing at eBay also. But I, I worked in a number of product general management um, positions, um, from everything from art.com to to Nike to, to Zynga. You know, so kind of continued the path down, ultimately, you know, looking for my chance to get into venture. You know, I think um, Zynga was, was awesome because it gave me, you know, kind of went back to that master class again because Zynga was a place to really learn game mechanics yep. and how to do, how to build a business on someone else's platform, in this case, Facebook. Um, So that was important. That led to going and running a a small company as a hired gun CEO. And that didn't work out too well. We ended up getting it acquired. And after that, I was fortunate that I had built a relationship with the team at at Comcast Ventures. And when I was just talking with them about what to do next, they said, hey, why don't you come over? We're looking for someone to run the San Francisco office of the Catalyst Fund and to also work on some of the deals in the main fund. So the Catalyst Fund, for those that don't know, it is a fund that Comcast Ventures started that invests in um, women and people of color, underrepresented minorities at the seed stage. Yep. And when was that started? Probably two thousand, maybe 2003 oh, wow. or so. So that's
0: long, long standing. I'm probably
1: going too far back. No, it wasn't that far back. It was started in... No, yeah, it wasn't that far back. Maybe maybe 12. Okay. Comcast Ventures was, guy was that like 97? I think they've okay. been around for a while. So they've been around that long. Yeah. Catalyst Fund was like early 10, so it was probably like 12, I think. Okay. 12 or 13. In fact, if you were to go back and see when the, um, it was it spun out of a decision from, I guess it was Comcast looking to acquire NBC. So it was started around that time. And and the reason was because there was pressure on that acquisition because um, particular African-Americans had done really well in um, local TV licenses. Mm-hmm. And so Comcast wanted to... Show that there was an ability to be able to kind of give back to that community. So I said, "Hey, why don't we start a venture fund that'll focus on underrepresented minorities?" So that's so around the time of
0: the NBC acquisition is when the Catalyst Fund started. Had you had you been uh, investing at all previous to Comcast, like angel investing? It seems like everybody's (laughs) an angel (laughs) investor out here.
1: I had done my own angel investing, so as an angel investor, and actually also invested as an LP. Oh. into a small seed
0: stage fund as well. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you had dabbled a little bit. Had dabbled a little bit. What were your major learnings in the early days at at Comcast Ventures? Given, you know, you obviously understood the ecosystem really well yes. And uh, and had tons of operating experience mm-hmm. as you made the transition into venture. What were the biggest learnings? I think the biggest learning
1: was how different it was to write the check from an institutional perspective as opposed to a personal perspective. I think, you know, writing a check from a personal perspective, it's almost, you know, I write the check and I don't expect anything. And so there's not really a lot of pressure. You know, at the time I was married, so maybe there was pressure from from, <laughs> yeah. from my wife, yeah. who is now a VC as well. so yeah. She oh. has similar experiences. <laughs> right. But when you're with a firm and you're writing the check as an institution, Maybe Comcast Ventures is a little bit different because it's a corporate VC and you're not acting on behalf. I mean, there's still a fiduciary responsibility because there is an LP relationship with Comcast in this example. Um, So it might be a little bit different when you're raising money from, you know, traditional LPs, family offices or pension funds uh, or foundations. But nonetheless, it's, it's different because there's, you know, you have to have more thought. There has to be a check written with the objective of achieving a specific return. And it, it just is, is different. It's a different dynamic. You know, you only have yourself to blame and to look at if your personal angel investments don't work out, but you know, you actually have to report back and, and tell people yeah. and it, you know, it could be disappointing because they're trusting in you, your LPs are trusting your decisions to be able to provide
0: them a return so that they can meet their own objectives. You know when you were an angel investor, obviously, I imagine you invested in the things that you thought were interesting or the people that you thought were interesting. How did that compare to maybe the the strategy or the thesis and the investment focus at at comcast and then and then g v I want to talk about g v too
1: sure, yeah, I think at so at Comcast ventures and with the catalyst fund in particular, we did try to you know focus on a few thematic areas. you know I think corporate v c and I mean, as, as you know, you're well aware because you're in it, sometimes it can get a bad rap, you know? And I think, uh, when you think about corporate VC, there's a spectrum, right? It's either you're hundred percent independent and you're investing as you wish, uh, which is the case with GV. On is the, that still
0: the case? That's still the yeah. case
1: with GV on the other end of the spectrum. It's purely strategic. So, the investments are made with an eye towards getting maybe an understanding of a particular industry or a particular sector or a particular type of technology, and to be able to bring those learnings back to the mothership, or in some cases there 's maybe a particular company that 's interesting that might fill a product gap within the line of the the mothership and so the ability to kind of you know get into that deal um, but then you know there's and that therein lies a little bit of the conflict right so then You know, as an entrepreneur, if you take the strategic money too early, do you dissuade other potential strategics from either coming in as an investor or down the road, even as an acquirer or, you know, deep strategic partner? Um, And then there's this place in the middle, which I think Comcast Ventures played really well, which is, you know, looking at the ability to make a nice financial return but at the same time understanding that you know Comcast NBC Universal has these great assets that allow it to provide value if, like for example Comcast Ventures was an investor in DocuSign and you know I think that one of the big value props was to be able to come to DocuSign and say hey at this stage of your development, which is at the time was still relatively early to where it is today, to bring Comcast, NBC, Universal as a significant customer—that's that's a big deal. Those were nice logos to have on the board, and so I think you know Comcast Ventures does a, a good job of kind of playing, kind of you know straddling the you know kind of you know not purely financial, but then not really purely strategic as well. Um, how about a GV?
0: And why did you ultimately, you know, leave and go to GV?
1: Yeah. So I was at Comcast Ventures for about a year. Um, I was recruited by GV and it was, you know, it was a tough decision actually. So I had to think about it a lot, talk to a lot of my advisors. At the end of the day, um, still have great relationships with the team at Comcast Ventures, really like them. And GV just offered Uh, just a massive platform, you know, the dollars that GV is putting to work. I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible to even think about. I mean, you know, it, in fact, it would be hard to deploy that much capital if GV had to fundraise as well. I think the fact that GV does not have to fundraise puts it in a really unique position to be able to allow the investment team. I mean, obviously, you know, you have to go back to, to, you know, the Alphabet um, team and, and Larry and Sergey and, and yeah. David Drummond and all of those individuals and report back. Um, but nonetheless, as, as you know, we're well aware, um, it's a different dynamic when um, there's not that pressure to go talk to multiple prospective LPs, have the pipeline, um, manage all those different relationships that are currently investors and those that are desired to be future investors. I mean, that just takes a significant amount of time, especially, you know, in the process of raising you know the next fund and the ability to you know maintain focus right and that pretty much is what happens at GV the investment team for the most part is able to maintain focus on just sourcing diligencing Investing and then providing the value of governance on the board, or being able to provide strategic advice, or in the case of GV with the operating partner model, to even layer on a different type of value proposition by bringing in functional experts. So, you know, uh, tip of the hat to to David Crane, the the CEO of GV, for really kind of helping to kind of shield the team and letting them keep their head down and focus while he maintains the relationship and kind of does the fundraising, right. Right. quote unquote, so to
0: say. Yeah, G V is unique. Give give us the I know it's gone through some evolution over over the years. I mean it used to be called Google Ventures. Mm-hmm. And so my interpretation of a rebrand to G V is a slight distancing from the mothership, I guess.
1: I get yeah, and also it happened around the same time that the alphabet right. restructuring happened. Right. So at that point, any of the other bets had to take Google out of their name, okay. other than obviously Google. That makes sense. So Google Ventures became G V, Google Capital became Capital G, Verily, you know, all of those naming and branding yeah. things kind of happened. But to your point, I think. GV has made a very concerted effort to not be classified as a traditional corporate VC. And the behavior uh, illustrates that because GV is not investing at all strategically. There's the, the flexibility and the independence to be able to make an. Inv- I mean, theoretically, GV could invest into a search company if, if you know there was a desire to do so. I don't know if there is, but if there was. They could invest into that company. I think you know, even looking at you know g v had an early position in in Uber um, while Capital yeah. G had a position in Lyft, um, oh. and then obviously hmm. there's Waymo. I mean so I think that that Alphabet does a really good job of allowing that independence to happen and then letting g v really operate as a traditional standalone financially focused venture firm that just happens to have
0: one lP right. And, and And in that theory LP happens
1: to be a corporate,
0: right? And in theory, and like you said, which has huge advantages around time spent fundraising and mm-hmm. managing investors and and I guess even though it's not a strategic investor in theory, you'd imagine, they have deep relationships throughout Google and, oh, in theory, can help 100%. navigate Google, even though if, even though that's not the driver, obviously. For it's not investment. the driver, yeah. but obviously those relationships yeah. exist. A nice
1: portion of the team at GV comes from um, Google right. or some of the other um, bets under Alphabet. Um, So absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and I think you know that's that's again part of the value proposition, right? There's a a gentleman, Rick Clow, who runs the the corp dev efforts for GV, and he maintains those relationships both internal to Alphabet, Google, the other bets, but then also with with other corporations, right, that are interested in innovation and you know what the GV portfolio looks like and how there might be some learnings or collaborations or partnerships.
0: Yep. Um. So let's talk about Plexo. Sure. Happy to. Is there a relationship between Plexo and GV? There is. So okay. the, the relationship really is Do you still work story, for GV?
1: I'm no longer an employee for <laughs> okay. GV. Uh, all right. I do miss this beautiful view. Yeah. I miss the, all the great food that they yeah. have here uh, <laughs> and the great team. Uh, but when I, um, I do work out of this office occasionally. But as of March of 2018, I am no longer an employee of GV, but I am an advisor still. I'm still on the webpage, I think. And what happened is I was a partner here at GV. And it was interesting because GV did something that, uh, you know, you've seen a few other firms do, which is to invest as an LP. And hmm. what GV invested into as an LP were seed stage venture funds led by a woman or a person of color. Hmm. So we I did, didn't realize that. Yeah, so we did five of those. And it was able to allow us to build relationships. Out of the fund. Out of the fund. Yeah. And so it allowed us to be able to build relationships with some of the emerging managers. And it also allowed us to see some differentiated deal flow. I mean, you know, if you think about it, when... So Larry and and Sergey, they they are true believers, and the exec team at Alphabet are true believers in the GV model and wanted to see more deals done. I mean, as you know, there's, in a generic sense, you can... Do more deals three ways. You can write bigger checks, or you can mm-hmm. deploy more capital. Right. In right, Three ways. You can write bigger checks, but that you know that kind of would take away from GV. Tries to play within five to to thirty million typically. There's some exceptions, and
0: I guess Capital G is really later exactly. stage. So Capital, capital G is right
1: later in. stage. Yep. I mean, like fifty, but I mean, really, I see them starting at about a hundred, a hundred million dollar check. Right, is their minimum check typically? Yeah. I mean, wow. when you look at the, okay, like the this that. all out there wow. on. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, so GV wasn't going to write bigger checks because then you start to go into the domain of, of capital G. Although that said, I mean, GV and capital G have done deals together. Uh, I think, you know, pin drop security and Stripe are probably the two that come to top of my mind. You could go into areas that are new, but as you know, that could, that's, Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. You like know I mean? uh, biotech exactly. or yeah, yeah, whatever else. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Although GV does do a lot in life sciences. Okay. But you could go into, you know, pick clean tech or, you know, some other place that historically the team hasn't done. But that can have its own challenges in that you may not have the expertise. So you bring that expertise in. And so then the other thing you can do is you can get more deals top of funnel that meet the criteria that you're currently investing into in terms of sector and stage and check size. And so I I think that when you look at Building relationships with the seed stage funds, it makes a lot of sense to be able to have another source of deal flow because you're getting your deal flow from, you know, either downstream or upstream VCs. You know, the downstream ones, hey, this is too early for us, take a look. The upstream ones are like, hey, we really we invested in this company, really like it, you should take a look. Your entrepreneurs, in the case of GV, other you know Zooglers, people that have left Google or people that are here at Google that might have invested in a company. So, I mean, those are kind of all your different places to get deal flow. And so the thought was, hey, you know, women and people of color have this nontraditional path to venture, end up with really interesting networks that can be a source of differentiated deal flow, hmm. as well as a different lens to be able to evaluate opportunities. And the, at the early stage, at the seed stage, I mean, this is I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but at the seed stage, in the absence of a lot of data— right? Then you're really relying upon some familiarity with a particular market or problem, Uh, or maybe, you know, it's just a relationship with the entrepreneur and it's an opportunistic type of deal. But, you know, what we see is that women and people of color kind of have access to these different opportunities and they have this different lens to be able to see things before there's an abundance of data.
0: So it worked for us. And And it sounds like purely
1: financially driven. Purely financially driven. Yeah. yeah. Purely financially driven. Yeah. yeah. This was um, this was a, a business case around yeah. diversity, which I think is is interesting in that, you know, often what I've found is that, you know, if 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 you come in and, and talk about diversity just for diversity's sake, I mean it's nice and often people will say, Okay, yeah, we know we should do that. Let's let's try to figure out the business case around it. And I think in this instance, They're actually, this was the business case, was diversity. And so when I looked at that, I, I started to think, I was thinking to myself, I believe I could actually scale that up and create a standalone hybrid model that leveraged this insight around diversity at the seed stage managers to be able to then directly invest into deals that I source from the portfolios of, of those managers. And so, uh, you know, GV is still has a lot of Google DNA. Google's an interesting place. Maybe there are other places where if I had broached the topic of, Hey, I have this great idea to start this fund. They might've told me, you know, okay, don't talk about that anymore. Get back to work. Or like, good luck to you. Yeah. Good luck to you. See you later. Here's the door. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So what is Plexo? So Plexo Capital, which I incubated at GV because they actually responded very positively and said, hey, that actually is a pretty interesting idea. Which was effectively to scale this existing initiative. That's right. To scale the existing investments as an LP into seed stage funds led by a woman or person of color. I incubated it at GV and we are a a $50 million fund. um, GV... Incubated us, Alphabet came in as our anchor investor, Wow, and then as That's part awesome. of that it's great. as, as part <laughs> of that we we were able to also take the portfolio of LP investments that we made, so we brought those oh, wow. over with us, okay, right So we started with a portfolio of those five, and then Alphabet also was our anchor, and then we also were able to bring on this is in sequence, Intel capital. Um, Cisco Investments, the Royal Bank of Canada, Hampton University, which is a Cambridge oh, Associates awesome. client. I'm I'm right. most proud of that one because right. I went to Hampton. That's really cool. Uh, so, you know, we were able to effectively um, go out and kind of leverage this strategy around working with corporates. Right? These are all, for the most part, those are our corporate venture funds. So we can provide them with some deal flow that they might not have seen otherwise. And then, and you know, conversely, if if there's something that they see that may be a little bit early, we can field that and figure out which one of our GPs is the right GP. And, you know, I'm sure your audience knows GP and VC are interchangeable. Yes. Which GP is the right GP to kind of field that opportunity? So we use a 60 a 40 split, so a 60% are LP investments, and then 40% are directs. We have modeled out through our data and research that about 21 funds is right for us, and that would be uh, about 14 funds that are between 10 to 100 million, where we can write a check of 1 million to 5 million or a commitment. And then for sub-10 million dollar funds, we're typically looking at a 500K commitment, and we're looking to do seven of those.
0: Has working on initiatives related to diversity long been a mission or uh priority for you? Or was this like largely an opportunistic thing that had come up over the last few years? I'm just curious yeah, like pers- it, it, from a personal perspective. Yeah. It's a combination really, you
1: know, sometimes individuals get lucky and then they can kind of merge their, their passion with their career. And, you know, being an African-American in tech and knowing the numbers, I always have been a proponent of diversity and right. inclusion. This really allows me to combine that passion and hopefully leave a legacy there and do a little bit to be able to, to change the narrative and to change the numbers. Uh, and at the same time, really focus on a strategy that, you know, for us, it's it's working. The numbers actually look really, yeah. really strong, solid numbers out of the gate and we feel that this strategy, you know, I always like to say I, I, I'm waiting to make this strategy obsolete. You know, people have asked me, right. well, how many funds do you think you can actually? That's and a th- really
0: interesting perspective. right? It, yeah. it really is. And I, and, yeah. I,
1: and I, you know, when you look at the numbers and obviously, you know, we've made gains, but then we've also taken steps back, you know, both, I think, you know, just looking at broader macro issues, societal issues, administration and policy issues, but, you know, we've also made strides, right? But there's a long way to go, and we're not moving as fast as I— I don't think we're moving as fast as anyone would like. Um, so I think that I, I, this strategy will remain solid. Um, plus, I just think, you know, it's really interesting. You know, I spent—Michael um, Kim is a, is a good friend. And, you know, I've known Michael for, for more than 21 years because I've known him longer than my oldest kid has been alive. And And who we've had on the origins. I'm aware. I'm aware. Yeah. He, that was a, a good episode actually. And you know, I'm a big believer. Michael and I spent a lot of time together. I'm a big believer in the opportunity here to be able to create alpha, to be able to identify the next generation of franchises. And when all one has to do is look at the data around the venture industry, the large funds and all, Let's just say, you know, billion dollars in assets under management across multiple funds. Those firms um, don't really have a lot of diversity. If if one would like to find diversity in venture, there has to be an analysis of the, the micro VCs, the sub $100 million right. dollar funds. That's where the diversity exists. And, you know, I believe that, you know, that's the future. And there's a, there's a myriad of reasons why that's the case. You know, it's, it's glass, there's glass ceiling in there, you know, people that were at larger funds that decided to put up their own shingle. And part of that might be because they didn't see the path. And part of it just might be because, you know, a lot of times you have ex-operators that are VCs and they're, they're entrepreneurs, right? And so they want to go and do their own thing, call their own shots, create their own legacy. So I think there's a little bit of a combination of that. But nonetheless, when when one looks at the, you know, the composition of the partnerships of the sub $100 million funds, I mean, that's where the diversity
0: is. And that's where I guess you're spending your time. That's where I'm spending yes. my time. So you're now a VC and an LP. Correct. At Plexo. Yep. And a solo GP, I might add. And it's just you. <laughs> it's just okay. me. I've got some
1: venture partners. Yeah. I've got a couple of interns, yeah. but it's, yeah. I'm a solo GP.
0: I'm curious how you're approaching the LP side. I mean, I guess you can lean on folks like Michael Kim and other folks that you know in the LP community to kind of help you get up the learning curve way quicker. But it is a new thing. 100%. Right? Um, So I'm just curious how you're approaching that side, some of the things you look for, beyond just the, the, you know, fun dynamics that you discussed. Like, what are some of the things that you're looking in Uh, for some of the, you know, founding GPs that you're backing?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that has been very beneficial for me is the ability to bring on three really strong, actually four very strong venture partners. So I brought on uh, Ken Coleman, who is a a luminary. He's like the godfather for African-Americans in tech. You know, he's Silicon Graphics, um, Activision, um, on multiple boards, has just been around the block multiple yep. times. He actually is uh, is Ben Horowitz's mentor, and he was the mentor for um for Ben over at Pinterest as well, CEO coach and mentor. Ken has been amazing, amazing mentor to me. Um, uh, Georgian Perkins. So Georgian worked at the Stanford Endowment for about 24 years doing, um, the LP, uh, investing on the private equity and venture capital side. So she's got a ton of experience. Yep. Uh, Laura Alber, the sitting CEO of William Sonoma, who's been amazing, just giving the perspective of, you know, kind of what an omni-channel retailer looks for in technology infrastructure. That's been awesome. And then Keith Walton who has a lot of experience, sits on the investment committee for a number of of public entities, private entities, um, has worked in the private equity space. So all of these individuals have really helped me to better understand what it's like to be an LP. Some of the things, to answer your second question, some of the things that we look for we're global in focus. So we actually do invest as an LPN directly outside of the United States. And so far we've made a commitment to a GP in Latin America and Mexico City and then also Sub-Saharan Africa in Nigeria. And what we what we look for is we want leaders. So we want thought leaders. We want people who aren't afraid to to issue a term sheet. We like it when people are issuing the majority of uh well when the majority of their investments are are being led by the GP. We like that. We like people that lead. We also do like, we like ownership. We like thematic investors. Um, we'll go after generalists. Typically, if we're going to do a generalist, we like to see them slant a little bit more towards the enterprise side. And that's a combination of just our belief about returns, but also trying to identify GPs who we believe will construct a portfolio that'll be of interest to our some of our LPs that invest downstream, GV, Intel Capital, Cisco Investments. So we do look at the the ecosystem as well, especially if it's outside of the United States. Um, we like, uh, for example, what got us really excited about Latin America and and this GP in Mexico City was. What's the firm named? investo. Okay. And the the interesting thing there is a couple of entrepreneurs who were successful with a delivery business, food delivery business, and they started doing angel investing and decided to raise a small angel fund. They had great relationships with um with YC. In fact, I met the GP cuz I was early to a meeting with Michael, the CEO of YC, and then he called me over and he said, "Hey, why don't you come and meet Sergio?" Oh, wow. and so, you know, I guess the lesson there is sometimes it pays to be early to a meeting. That's cool. <laughs> and and then um just getting to know Sergio, seeing how many companies he helped get into YC, seeing the CRM system that they built to do all the tracking and pattern matching around which other investors they should partner with, and then seeing all the activity in Latin America. I mean Latin, you know, they were they were uh, in the first institutional seed round for Rappi, which was great, and then kind of subsequent the, the GPs, after they got the infrastructure and team in place, they actually said, Hey, you know, would you be okay if we decided to start another company? And so they started, um, Grin, which is the scooter company in Latin America that recently merged with yellow to form grow. And they've got like 93% of the wow. Latin American market. They're absolutely just crushing it. Uh, and so we were able to be in the, in the very first, that was, I mean, that's, our best performing direct. And it's, you know, we were in the the first couple of rounds of, of financing. Um, but we like the Latin American market because there's just a lot of activity. Um, it's got some pretty deep pockets to be able to help finance those companies. There's some great firms there that are investing, you know, maybe, you know, not pockets as deep as, as let's say, you know, even, you know, like a, a Sequoia or a, which came into, to, um, a lot of these deals. They did a yep. the series B of Rappi or, you know, like a, a soft bank, right? Which is which is also now come into to Rappi. But these, you know, that ecosystem has deep pockets nonetheless. But what we also look for are GPs within those ecosystems that have strong ties to other sources of capital like the United States or like some of the Asian countries, right. China and Japan. Because if there is a large global scale opportunity identified that can have a multi billion dollar exit. Probably do need pockets deeper than what the local market can deliver. So it's important to be able to kind of have, you know, Andreessen, Sequoia, SoftBanks of the world be able to come in. Um, you know, I think the same thing in, in Africa. It's early days in sub Saharan Africa, but we really like the GP. Um, Ingressive is the name of the firm yep. in, in Africa, Maya. based where? Uh, they're based in, uh, in Lagos, Nigeria. Okay. And, you know, she grew up in the state, she's half Nigerian, half Swedish, uh, actually grew up in the Midwest, but went back to Nigeria, goes back and forth between Nigeria and the United States, mainly San Francisco. And, you know, that ecosystem is a little bit earlier, but there is a lot of capital going there. Uh, and she's had a really good eye to be able to invest in some of the best companies and, again, strong ties um, to YC and to some of the other incubators. Her business prior to, to starting to do investing was she was bringing tech companies over like um, you know Facebook, Google, YC, 500. She was bringing them over to show them and introduce them to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Oh, wow. So she was able to kind of develop those ties, um, and has done really well to, to spin up, uh, an investing platform as
0: well. So I guess you're already a chunk of the way through this one. Yes. How do you think about Plexo longer term? I mean, the goal is to do this for a
1: very long time. Very long time. Okay. The goal is to build a franchise. We want to be able to achieve a billion dollars in AUM in less than 10 years. So we've got a big, hairy, audacious goal ahead of us to do that and to be able to continue with our strategy and thesis. um, The numbers will start to prove that out. Our managers are, we've been fortunate that we've been able to, to select some of the best managers out there um, that fit our thesis. Right. And so as they grow, right, and start to raise new funds, and we're already seeing some of our managers come back to market, then we will grow alongside them. I think, you know, some of the challenges, um, actually, Michael talked about some of these challenges, is, you know, with our model, given that we're investing as an LP, uh, it's difficult sometimes to find the right fit of LP for Plexo Capital, because we do have a, a layer, an additional layer of fees. And so, It's been important for us And how do you
0: charge fees? Can I ask? Yeah, so- On top of, like, the VCs are charging typically 2 and 20 or somewhere in that range. Yeah. And you charge another what? So we
1: charge $1.5 and and then a 10% carry on the LP side and a twenty traditional 20% carry on the the direct side. And probably what's important is, because I've learned in this LP world, we don't co-invest per se because that term I've learned has a very specific meaning- When people use the term co-invest, typically that's an LP that is piggybacking off of their GP's investment. Traditionally through an SPV where there's additional pro rata that the GP is not able to fill, they'll open that up to some of their LPs. Sometimes they won't charge any fees or any carry. Sometimes they'll charge, you know, something less than what they charge in the fund. But the LP is getting the ability to be able to get a, a sweetener, so to say, on their return, um with minimal effort and therefore they typically leave the LP typically leaves the diligence off to the GP yep.
0: right and it's in an SPV and and, the, an SPV. and the, so the LP typically isn't directly on the company's cap table You got it that's not how we do it okay so we invest directly
1: so we appear on the cap table we're not leveraging the the any pro rata from the the GP Uh, In fact, in some cases, the GP may not be following on in that particular round, right? We're looking for the introduction. I mean, obviously, we're talking to the GPs all the time. We're seeing which companies are doing really well, which ones could be interesting to us or to, again, our LPs, some of whom are downstream direct investors, And so we do our own diligence. This really comes back to my roots because my roots are as a GP, a direct investor. So we're doing our own diligence and then we're appearing on the cap table. We're looking for something to give us an advantage or a value proposition to the entrepreneur. And that could be, you know, simply, Hey, you know, we've got these LPs that are investors that could be interesting down the road. We've got Relationships with some of the companies, even if it's not an investment that makes the most sense. Or maybe it's just an area of expertise that I have and I'm able to kind of help the, the entrepreneur. So we're looking for some value add so that we can invest directly, do our own diligence and appear on the cap
0: table. And so you were talking about the challenge of those fees to LPs. Yeah. You know,
1: it, it can be challenging. And what I've done is, and I knew that there had to be data out there and I was fortunate. There's been a lot of research done on if one is going to use this model of investing as an LP, where does it make, first of all, do the numbers play out? The numbers actually do play out, but they play out in the early stage space and and this partially has to do as a fund of funds as a fund of funds so is, which I don't use the term fund sure. of funds but yes when you're investing as an LP and then in a vehicle that's also investing directly what the data shows is and th- again this isn't news to you but the the distribution of returns kind of early stage let's call it pre you know a tra- well I was going to say traditional series A what what is deemed a series A today let's say a round that's no more than you know 15 or 20 million Rounds earlier than that um, have a power law distribution of returns if the point of entry was at that point or earlier, right? So when you look at the returns, the, the median return is probably, I think this is data for the past 20, 25 years, it's probably 5.6% on an annualized basis. And then the, the mean is, you know, skewed out power law style to about 22, 23%. By the way, you would never incur all of this risk. For a five point six percent annualized yeah. return, yeah, that's not great. You were, that's, that's not, not great. great. That's yeah. not great. Yeah, um, but what you're looking for are the outliers. Which right, pull that mean out. Right, and those are typically found, um, you know, when your entry point is pre-seed or seed. When you look at, you know, post Series A or later stage rounds, the it's a normal distribution, right? And so as a result, if you're going to have this additional layer of fees you know, on a normal distribution of returns, then you're kind of eating into the returns. However, if you're doing it at the early stage and if you can pick the right GPs that are going to skew out on that outlier basis to get to that 22, 23%, then you have the ability, in fact, to not only kind of cover the fees, but in fact, if you can do your job really well, you more than
0: cover your fees because you're providing additional return. How do you think about the impact that you hope Plexo to make. I know you said like maybe your 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 job is done when it becomes obsolete.
1: Yes, but, I, that would be pretty cool. They we have to shift models. Then we'll be directly competing with Michaelis and Dilma. Exactly. Him I, said that. Uh, I think we do feel the the impact. Because and do you measure it? I guess we are starting to measure it. So th- this is something that I'm trying to get more data on. What we do know is similar to the world of startups. For women and people of color, uh, it takes longer for GPs that are female or underrepresented minorities or just people of color in general. It takes longer for them to, to raise. And as a a percentage of the target, um, it's a lower percentage, right? It's, rare to see someone mm. go out and raise a hundred percent of what they were trying to raise. I mean, base 10 is a great story on yep. You know, they, in essence, they raised 137% of what they were yep. setting out to raise. Um, that isn't typically the case. And it typically takes longer for GPs to, to raise less than their target. We feel that we can help to be a catalyst for that. I, i try to avoid, and, and look, just like as an, as a GP doing directs, I'm sure that there are GPs that, you know, notation shares deals with, right? So same thing happens in the world of LPs. There are LPs that have a, a similar thought around the opportunity here. And we work with them. We, we trade notes, we give introductions, which is, so it's great. And you know, I I just feel that we're making an impact by providing a little bit of a smoother path for these GPs. Um, I think it's nice to be viewed as as a positive signal. So I think people are starting to say, "Hey, have you gone and talked to Plexo Capital? Hey, is Plexo Capital in this deal? Are they going to commit? Um, it's great to have that positive signal. What what I do not want is negative signal i don't cuz with our model given that we're going after a core number of of GPs we have some very specific attributes that we're looking for in terms of you know lead positions the types of deals they're going to invest into we do spend some time with portfolio construction to make sure that they're going to be able to deliver the returns that we're looking for there are a lot of GPs that I think are going to make amazing franchises that still nonetheless may not be a fit for us. So I never want us to be viewed as negative signal. I only want to be viewed as as a positive signal. Yep. And even with a lot of the GPs that we meet, even if they're ultimately not going to be a fit either for this current Plexo Capital Fund 1, um, we still like to build the relationship because for Fund 2 – you know, for us, maybe the timing is off today, but maybe the timing works the next time the GP is in the market. So we like to maintain those relationships or we'll help GPs with introductions to other LPs that we believe
0: may actually be a good fit for their model. Yep. Thank you so much for doing this. Absolutely. We really appreciate it. I think Plexo is is really interesting and yeah, um, um, inspirational. So thank you. Thank you for doing this. Awesome. Appreciate it.
2: This podcast was created by Notation. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams from day zero. Notation companies are always hiring. Check out jobs.notation.vc. You can also find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. Thanks to Carta for being our title sponsor. I'm sure you're familiar with Carta. Carta changed the way private companies manage their cap tables and 409A valuations. Companies and venture firms like Robinhood, Flexport, and USV use Carta to manage billions of dollars in equity. Carta also offers fund administration services for investors now. We use Carta at Notation and recommend it to all our companies. Save time running your back office with Carta. Get 10% off at carta.com slash notation. Terms and conditions apply. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with hashtag OpenLP.